Welcome back to episode four of the Title Town podcast. Got a really packed show today. Um, a lot of football to talk, some baseball, and even some soccer. Uh, and as always, if you like the show, feel free to go follow me on Instagram at title.town.podcast. And also you can follow the show on the Apple Podcasts app. I thought that a good place to start today would be FC Cincinnati's U.S. Open semifinal match against uh, Messi and Inter-Miami. Um, if you don't know what happened, uh, FCC took an early 2-0 lead. Miami fought back and tied it 2-2, so the match went to overtime. Uh, it was 3-3 at the end of overtime, and Inter-Miami ended up winning 5-4 in penalty kicks. Obviously, Lionel Messi was the player to watch in this match. Um, this was my first time ever seeing him play in person. I'd watched him on TV a couple times, but I think one thing that stood out to me was kind of the way he played the game and how different it was from everyone else on the field. So for the first half, first honestly 70 minutes of the game, uh, Messi spent a lot of his time standing around, uh, walking maybe slowly, jogging slowly, but not really putting a lot of pressure uh, on FCC's back line. But he did pick his moments to, uh, to attempt to push forward, to attempt to create chances for Inter-Miami. But for a lot of the first portion of the game, he was just walking around, conserving his energy, uh, completely different from the way that FC Cincinnati and most MLS players play the game. So late in the game, when FC Cincinnati had to take out their attackers, such as Luciano Costa and Brandon Vasquez, uh, Lionel Messi was able to stay in the game because he had conserved his energy in the first half. And I really do think that making those substitutions was what lost the game for FC Cincinnati. They had a lot of opportunities late in the game with Yuya Kubo and Sergio Santos up top to extend the lead to two uh, once it had gotten to 2-1, but they just couldn't do that. And then really late in the game, when FCC was close to getting that victory, the offense didn't seem very capable of stalling, taking the ball to the corner, running some time off the clock, and giving the defense some rest. And I really think that having starters in there, uh, having Vasquez and Acosta in there, would have helped FCC's case. And I understand that you have to be really technically skilled to play the game the way that Lionel Messi does, but I just think in this game, looking at the way he conserved his energy in the first half, the way he was able to constantly put pressure on FCC's defense in the second half when he needed to, um, his strategy in the first half, walking around, standing around, definitely was beneficial to him and his team late in the game. So ultimately, I do think that those early substitutions um, for FC Cincinnati were what cost them the game. They probably thought they had it in the bag with the 2-0 lead, getting into the uh, later part of the second half. So I do think that FCC very well could have won that game. Uh, definitely some tactical mistakes there. But I, I want to get to the PKs too. I don't know why Nick Hagelin was taking a PK. Clearly did not have the correct body language going up to it. He looked frantic. And I think most people that watch the normal games can tell you that Nick Hagelin is not the technical player that other guys are in this league. And I don't know why he would be the one stepping up to the penalty spot. I get that he's been on this team for a couple years. He has some experience in the game of soccer. But like looking at the way that he passes the ball in the game, or the way that he strikes the ball, his accuracy, I have no idea why he would be the one taking that penalty kick. Also, 
Not sure why FCC's backup keeper Alec Kahn was in there instead of Roman Celitano. It's possible that FCC just doesn't care as much about the Open Cup as Inter-Miami does, but again, Alec Kahn failing to save any penalties for, I think it was the second penalty shootout in a row. Um, so FCC didn't have any chances to make mistakes, and Nick Hagelin just made a mistake. Not surprised that he did. Definitely not a great decision to put him in there at at the fifth spot, taking a pen. But that that definitely hurt FCC, but that game should not have been in penalties in the first place. FCC should have closed that out. Uh, it was the substitutional errors that, that hurt them in the end. FCC now begins their return to MLS play, uh, where they still have a pretty sizable lead in the Eastern Conference. I think once they get more in a groove of things, uh, get back to more of a regular schedule, the past month, month and a half, has been kind of crazy with the League's Cup and the U.S. Open Cup. But I think now that those are over and behind us, I think FCC is going to be able to take off again like they did early in the season. And looking at Inter-Miami's place in the Eastern Conference table, they're sitting at dead last. It's become clear that Messi is probably not going to start uh, in his first MLS game this weekend. So I'm not sure how uh, much faith Inter-Miami has in itself to be able to make a run in the MLS. And I certainly don't think that it's plausible for them to do that. They'd have to have a miraculous end of the season because of how poorly they started the season. So I'm not exactly worried about them threatening FC Cincinnati. Hopefully, FCC can get it done late in the season, can win that first MLS title to represent title town, Cincinnati, Ohio. Moving on to a check-in with the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, right now, they're sitting at 67-63, and 63, four games over 500. Uh, I think they're one game back of the wildcard spot, but about four and a half to five games back of the Milwaukee Brewers in the NL Central. Hunter Green made his second start since coming back from an injury on Friday against the Diamondbacks. Um, he continued to struggle. He pitched three and two-thirds innings, five earned runs, so obviously not going deep into ball games and not putting his team in a position to win or have the lead. He really struggled against the Blue Jays last weekend, gave up a lot of hard-hit balls, which is extremely concerning. Uh, I think yesterday his accuracy was a huge issue, um, walking a lot of guys, getting deep into counts, putting them on base. So then once he gives up those singles, those doubles, uh, runs are coming in, it seems, almost every time. And there's really no stress-free innings with Hunter Green. The way he pitches is just not, it's not impressive to me right now. I don't think he has command of his breaking pitches at all. And he's throwing 98 or 99, but so are a lot of guys these days. Hunter Green is by no means no means a, a exceptional pitcher to these hitters. He is obviously throwing high velocity, but these guys are facing that all the time. And without a reliable breaking pitch, uh, without being able to locate pitches on the corners, he's just going to get rocked and get taken out early in the starts and have a high ERA. So he needs to fix that if the Reds are going to be contenders this year or in coming years. More sad news for the Reds is that Joey Votto has recently been placed on the 10-day injured list. He has not been hitting well enough for the past couple of weeks. There's no way around that. 
His average on the season is a, around 200, might be a bit below. I know he has the 13 home runs, but you just can't have a guy hitting fifth, sixth in your lineup at the designated hitter spot when he's hitting 200. He's obviously not offering anything to this team defensively that they can't get anywhere else. He's not offering anything to this team on the base pass that they can't get anywhere else. Uh, so just not not being being productive enough uh, for this Reds offense. And I'm not sure that he will be back this season. I'm a little bit worried that this is the last we've seen of Joey Votto. He just hasn't been playing well enough. And if the Reds do want to make a put playoff push uh, this, this fall, uh, it's probably going to have to be without Joey Votto. Once they get India back, once they get Fraley back, Nick Martini has entered in this lineup. He had two home runs last night. So he's honestly been more impressive than Votto has been. Not sure that we're going to see Joey hit in a Reds uniform again. And that's pretty sad, uh, obviously. But this is a new era of Reds baseball. And Votto is not living up to the standard. He's 39 years old, so it's understandable. He's had good moments for the Reds this season, but he hasn't had enough. Uh, so Joey may not be coming back. This Reds team has been pretty frustrating in the past couple of weeks. They just seem to be hovering around three, four games over 500, not able to put together any big win streaks, which is especially concerning uh, due to the Milwaukee Brewers kind of surging for the past couple of weeks. So uh, I'm not sure that the division is going to be in reach for the Reds. I certainly hope it is. I certainly hope they can get some home playoff games. But I think the wild card is probably the best shot, and it's a, it's extremely achievable. The Reds just need to string together a couple good win streaks. I think they can get there. Um, I think they have the players to do it. The experience is obviously an issue, but one game back of the wild card right now. So I'm certainly hopeful that the Reds can make the playoffs this year. I'm I'm extremely hopeful about them doing it in upcoming years. But for 2023, I think the wild card is the best option for the Cincinnati Reds. Speaking of the playoffs, a team that has not done very well in the playoffs in recent memory uh, is the Dallas Cowboys, and they certainly made a splash yesterday when they traded a fourth-round pick away for San Francisco 49ers quarterback Trey Lance. Lance was the former third overall pick for the Niners. They traded three first-round picks to trade up to get him in the draft, and got a fourth-round pick in return. So obviously, big loss here for San Francisco, a uh, big mistake for them, but many people think they're going to be fine with Brock Purdy at quarterback. They certainly have weapons, so this decision has not doomed their franchise, but definitely very interesting that they're getting so little in return for an asset that they paid so much for. On the Cowboys' side of things, I'm not exactly sure what they're trying to do with this move. Dak Prescott obviously has not been very impressive in the past couple of years, but when you're looking at the Cowboys' QB, um, their QB situation, their backup Cooper Rush was exceptional last year. Um, he did exactly what the team needed him to do. He did not turn the ball over very much. He went five and one in his six starts that he had when Dak Prescott was injured. He relied on his stellar defense. He was a great game manager, 
and he was able to win a lot of games for them and keep them in a playoff race that many people thought uh, they were out of after Dak's injury in week one. So when you're looking at the who will be the Cowboys' second-string quarterback this season, I don't think there's any reason for it not to be Cooper Rush. He hasn't shown them anything uh, that says he's incapable and competent. I think he definitely could be able to step in for Dak. And many people, including myself, actually think that he played a little bit better than Dak Prescott did last year. So when Trey Lance is coming in, he obviously has not been impressive in training camp, uh, has not been impressive in preseason games, has not had a lot of reps, needs a lot of development of his talent, hasn't had a lot of snaps. I don't think Trey Lance is a great backup QB option for the Cowboys this season. I think they're going to stick with Cooper Rush as their backup quarterback. So that poses the question, why is Trey Lance even there in the first place? And I, I think that's that's pretty intriguing. I think it may be a long-term thing. I think he may be a long-term replacement for Dak Prescott if he's able to work out for the Dallas Cowboys. Um, Dak, as I said before, has not been very impressive. He's not been able to take this team to the next level. So although Trey Lance is not going to be ready to play this year uh, and will, pro- will probably not be the second string, let alone the starter this year, I think the Cowboys are looking at him as a possible long-term replacement for Dak Prescott. Uh, Trey Lance has obviously a lot of talent. That's why he was drafted third overall. But when you're looking at the situation, that's the only reason I can think that the Cowboys would have uh, tried to get Trey Lance here. Now, if you're Dak Prescott, the pressure is absolutely on this season. You are the quarterback of America's team, the Dallas Cowboys, which obviously comes with enough pressure by itself. But you also have people saying your backup quarterback's better than you. You have people saying that the Cowboys have just acquired their succession plan for you. You led the league in interceptions last year while missing, I think, five or six games. So the pressure is definitely on for Dak Prescott. He hasn't played well in big games before, but I'm really interested to see how he performs this year. He's still in his prime. He still has the capability to take this team far, I believe, but I think this may be Dak Prescott's last chance in Dallas. If he does not get it done this year, if he is not very good this year, I would not be surprised to see the Cowboys try to find uh, or try to go in a different direction at the quarterback position. Moving on, the team on the other side of this trade, the San Francisco 49ers, got a lot of positive news yesterday when they were ranked the number one offense in the National Football League by NFL.com, on NFL.com's rankings. I really dislike this ranking. I, obviously, I had the San Francisco 49ers going 10-7 and and finishing third in the NFC West this year, so... Not a big fan of the ranking, uh, and here's why. The starting quarterback this year for the San Francisco 49ers is Brock Purdy. Mr. Irrelevant, the former last pick in the NFL draft. Now, Brock Purdy is uh, admired going into this season because of what he did for the 49ers at the end of last season. So I'm just going to go through... Brock Purdy's achievements last year and show why I think they're a little bit less impressive than uh, meets the eye. 
and why the San Francisco 49ers are going to be nowhere near uh, the top of the NFL this season in terms of offensive output. Purdy's first NFL appearance last year uh, happened when Jimmy Garoppolo got hurt early in the game against the Miami Dolphins. The Niners won that game 33-17. However, Miami was a bottom 10 defense in the NFL. The next week, Purdy had his first start against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Now, if you didn't watch the Buccaneers last year, you might have missed this, but they were a pretty abysmal football team. Their offensive line was beat up. Uh, They were not protecting Tom Brady, who was still a very accurate quarterback, but obviously an old and slow quarterback that essentially could not function when his O-line played as poor as it did. They had injuries to their receivers. Their defense was getting older. They were an aging football team, and they actually won a really poor NFC South division with a losing record. They went into San Francisco, played their San Francisco's physical defense, and got absolutely destroyed. The San Francisco 49ers won 35-7 against the Bucs in this game in Brock Purdy's first start. Definitely an impressive victory for Purdy against the GOAT Tom Brady and a good output for the 49ers offense. But this Bucks team was abysmal. They were ranked 13th overall in the NFL defensively, so slightly above average. But again, I'm just still not very impressed by that performance. I don't think the Bucks defense was actually uh, the 13th best defense in the NFL. I think that had more to do with their schedule. So again, I don't think that beating a bad Bucks football team or torching a pretty bad Miami defense is that impressive from Brock Purdy. The next week, they defeated the Seattle Seahawks 21-13 in Purdy's second start. 21 points, pretty average, maybe a little bit below average offensive output against the Seattle defense that was bottom 10 in the National Football League. Then, the Niners took on the Washington Commanders, who had the 7th best defense in the NFL, and the Niners were able to pull out a 37-20 victory. Pretty impressive numbers on offense, but again, it's the Washington Commanders. Uh, No disrespect, but I just don't think that putting up a good performance against the Commanders is enough evidence to call a quarterback or an offense the best in the league. Moving on, the next week, uh, Purdy defeated the Arizona Cardinals 38-13. to The Cardinals were obviously one of the worst teams in the league last year. They had the second worst defense in the NFL. So again, great performance, bad opponent. And I just can't take away from that that the Niners are going to be uh, extremely dangerous or the most dangerous offense in the league this season. That was the end of the regular season. Then they went and played Seattle in the playoffs, another bottom 10 defense, and won 41-23. Again, bottom 10 defenses. It's great to put up good performances against them, but you have to put up good performances against them. I can hold it against you if you don't, and you can get praise if you do, but I'm not going to put the 49ers over the top because of all these performances against weak teams. Um, And then finally... Purdy's last full game against the Dallas Cowboys in the divisional round of the playoffs. The Niners triumphed, triumphed 
19 to 12 against the Cowboys. Only scored one touchdown in this game. Uh, four field goals, one touchdown, despite two Dak Prescott turnovers, giving the Niners short fields. Probably not a very impressive offensive performance, but to be fair, the Cowboys were the fifth best defense in the NFL. Still, though, 19 points is not going to cut it against a lot of good teams. Um, obviously, Dak Prescott was terrible in this game. Uh, the Cowboys only put up 12 points. That's how the Niners were able to advance to the NFC Championship game. When you're looking at it for an, from an offensive perspective, in hindsight, it just doesn't seem like a performance that, that proves that the Niners are going to be the dynamic offense this year that NFL.com thinks they will be. In Brock Purdy's eight wins at the end of the 2022 season, five were against bottom 10 defenses. One was against a Tampa team that was middle of the pack on defense, but atrocious in general. One was against a Washington defense that, again, was top 10 in the NFL in points per game, but I'm just not going to call that a generational performance from Brock Purdy in the San Francisco 49ers offense. And the last win was against the fifth best defense in the NFL and the Dallas Cowboys, uh, a game in which the Niners only scored one offensive touchdown. So what am I trying to say here? I think that the San Francisco 49ers are extremely overrated on the offensive side of the ball going into the 2023 season. They play the AFC North this year. Those That division has some, some tough defenses. Um, they're going to have to play the Eagles this year. They obviously have a tough defense. Just looking at the schedule, Brock Purdy is going to face some teams that have much tougher defenses than he faced late last year. Additionally, Purdy is returning from an elbow injury, uh, which I think is an injury similar to what a lot of baseball players have. Uh, which is certainly very concerning. Not something that should be happening if you're a quarterback. So again, I would look for that to possibly play a role in the Niners' offense this year. Obviously, they have the weapons. They have Kittle, they have Debo, they have Ayuk, and they have Christian McCaffrey. Should be a dynamic offense. I'm not saying they won't be a great offense, but I do think Purdy's injury is going to keep them from being the number one overall offense in the NFL this season. And just one final note for NFL.com or anyone out there that thinks that the San Francisco 49ers should be ranked the number one offense in the NFL heading into this season. It's really important to understand how much uh, their physical and dominant defense plays a role in helping the offense appear better than it actually is. Last season, the San Francisco defense led the NFL in yards allowed per game. They allowed the least yards per game of any defense in the NFL, and they allowed the least points per game of any defense in the NFL. What does this do? It gives the San Francisco 49ers offense more time with the ball because the Niners defense is able to get opposing offenses off of the field. The Niners defense also creates turnovers, also gets sacks, and gives the San Francisco 49ers offense a short field. So all of these factors play a role in helping the Niners offense appear better than it actually is. They played a light schedule last year against easy defenses late in the season. When they did play tough defenses, they struggled. 
Uh, Brock Purdy's coming off an injury going into this year. Their numbers were very skewed last year due to the dominance of the Niners' defense. So, NFL.com, I'm not seeing anything that tells me that the Niners will be the number one offense in the 2023 season. The Niners actually aren't my only problem with the list, though. Um, Here's the top seven that NFL.com gives. They have the 49ers in first, which obviously I don't agree with. Kansas City Chiefs in second, the Buffalo Bills in third, the Philadelphia Eagles in fourth, the Jacksonville Jaguars in fifth, the Cincinnati Bengals in sixth, and they have the New York Jets as the seventh best offense in the NFL heading into the 2023 season. Obviously, uh, making these lists requires a certain level of subjectivity from the creator, but I just really don't like this list as a whole. Uh, and I have more problems with it than just the misranking of the Niners. I like having the Kansas City Chiefs up there on the list. Obviously, Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey are both going to do their thing. I like Pacheco running the football in their backfield. I like McKinnon running the football in their backfield and uh, being sort of a safety net for Patrick Mahomes. I could see McKinnon scoring a lot of touchdowns this year, but... Looking at the Chiefs as a whole, I certainly understand why their offense, especially with Andy Reid running the show, uh, I get why their offense is number two on that list. The Buffalo Bills, though, at number three, I'm a little more concerned about. I don't like the offensive line. Josh Allen loves to throw interceptions. He loves to fumble the football. I don't know how bad his relationship has gotten with Stephon Diggs. I certainly hope it's not that bad so we can see that duo out there dominating the NFL this season. But I think the Bills' inability to run the football, their inability to protect the quarterback, combined with Josh Allen's knack for turning the ball over, makes them a little overrated here on this list. I like the Philadelphia Eagles at four. Again, I think Jalen Hurts may be a little overrated after his performance last season. But I certainly like the wide receiver duo of A.J. Brown and Devontae Smith. I certainly like their acquisition of DeAndre Swift. I really think he's going to help them out running the football. So I don't think fourth on this list is a bad place for them. My concerns with the Eagles are a little bit more with the defense. So fourth, best offense of the NFL. Definitely not a bad place for the Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, I think NFL.com got this one right. Fifth on NFL.com's list is the Jacksonville Jaguars. Um, a lot of people are not as high in the Jaguars this year as I am. But I really like the respect that NFL.com is showing them here. Trevor Lawrence had his breakout season last year. Um, he has Zay Jones, Christian Kirk, and obviously now Calvin Ridley to throw the ball to. I think Evan Ingram is a great option at tight end. I think ETN is going to be great running the football. So... I like the Jaguars this season. I really like their offense. I actually would probably have them a little bit higher on the list, but I'm glad that they're getting the respect that they deserve. Sixth on the NFL.com's list, outside of the top five, uh, are the Cincinnati Bengals. Just an abysmal pick here by whoever made this list on NFL.com. I guess they don't appreciate the fact that the Bengals have the second-best quarterback in the NFL the best wide receiver trio in the NFL, an upgraded offensive line, 
uh, with Orlando Brown Jr., a healthy offensive line, a great kicker, some explosiveness out of the backfield with Chase Brown, some physicality out of the backfield with Joe Mixon. I don't know what's not to like here, and I do not know how the Bengals could be left out of the top five on this list. Just a very bad pick by NFL.com. Unfortunately, the list does not get any better, though. At 7th, they have the New York Jets, uh, the 7th best offense in the NFL. The Jets finished as a bottom 10 offense in the league last year in points per game. They did add Aaron Rodgers at quarterback, uh, so credit to them. However, with a great O-line last year uh, and two great running backs in Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon, some young receivers with a lot of potential, Aaron Rodgers and the Packers' offense were still below average uh, in points per game in the NFL last season. And I think they actually were helped a little bit by Jordan Love's one performance in his game against the Philadelphia Eagles. So I think Love actually elevated the Packers a little bit. Rodgers did not. um, He was not good last year. The New York Jets' offensive line is questionable. I think their quarterback play is questionable. They obviously have a great backfield with Dalvin Cook and Brees Hall, and they have some wide receivers with a lot of potential. But to put this team as the seventh best offense in the NFL heading into the season, when there's absolutely no evidence pointing towards that outcome, is pretty ridiculous. I do not think they're going to finish nearly this high, and I think the bigger question is, what's the excuse going to be for Aaron Rodgers this time? All in all, just a really bad list from NFL.com. If I had to do it myself, I would have the Chiefs as the top offense, followed by the Bengals, followed by the Jaguars, then the Philadelphia Eagles, and I'd have the Bills rounding out the list at number five. Obviously, this is all pretty subjective stuff, but the good news is, is that I have the opportunity to be right in about two weeks when the NFL season kicks off. Uh, I'm just super excited for that to happen, super excited to see all 32 teams back in action again. It's going to be a really fun 2023 season, and I would look for the Chiefs, Bengals, Jags, Eagles, and Bills offenses to thrive this year. That's it for today's edition of the Tuttletown Podcast. Remember to go follow me on Instagram, follow the podcast on the Apple Podcast app, and I will be back soon. Thanks for listening.